Hello. Jim Hamblin. Hey, Catherine. We're doing an emergency taping this morning because our friend and colleague Van, we may not be able to talk to him for much longer. Oh, my God. He will explain. Don't just say something like that. (laughs) He's going to be indisposed very soon. You mean he's Um, sick? He's going to tell us what's going on. Ugh. That's a really inappropriate cliffhanger. Van? Hey. Hey, Van. Van. I cannot believe we're talking right now. The day has come. The day has come. What do you mean? Jim may not know. Oh, um, yeah. So uh, we got a baby on the way and appears she is very imminently on the way. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I, I want to say congrats, but uh, I uh, yeah, congrats. That's what I should say, right? <laughs> Don't you say it after the person is born? I guess you can Usually say after. Yeah, okay, I'll wait. Yeah, well, it's it, it's fine. I, I, I take <laughs> accept I, it. I, I take it in advance. Yeah, I'm so excited for you, Van. You get to go to the hospital. Yeah. Um, that is a uh, matter of debate right now. Oh, um, I don't mean to pry. I think I just know it's, no, it's an issue fine. on a lot of people's minds. Current plan is likely going to be me and our toddler are going to sit outside in the car. That sucks. Yeah, that's tough. It's not good. It's not ideal. Yeah. What has the hospital been telling you? There's one pretty clear rule, and it's nobody under 16 allowed in the ward. We don't really have a babysitter. Uh, usually, you know, you'd have your parents come help out with this stuff, but it's not really an, uh, an, an option these days. So it's going to be me and Benjamin, our, our three-year-old, uh, and he's not allowed to go in the ward. Um, I've had a cold in the last month um, when she went in for... Uh, uh, early labor signed a couple a couple weeks ago. I wasn't allowed to go in with her, um, so it's 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 we don't know if I'll be allowed even without me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, that's something we've just been mentally preparing for the past couple weeks. Well, I'm sorry you're in such a bizarre situation, but I can't wait to hear about your baby. Yeah, I can't wait to meet her. Um, <laughs> One good thing about sort of the suddenness of all this is we have we've been having trouble coming up with names um, for a long time. And uh, with Benjamin, with our first kid, it was sort of like we knew what his name was when she was five months along. Um, we had no idea what this kid's name was going to be. And this morning, we were just kind of scrambling. She told me they were, the contractions were, you know, seven minutes apart or so. And it was like, oh, well. We got to find a name. Um, <laughs> and we so have you one. decided? Yeah. No, I don't want to tell okay. you all the names <laughs> in case, like she's trying to break the news. You know, <laughs> in, in case the, it changes, and then I'm on the record. All forever. right, all right, uh, all right. We'll follow up. We'll follow up. And also, I think it's I think it's somewhat bad luck. Um, yes, but we yes. do have a name. Yeah. Okay. Well, congrats on the name. That's very exciting. Thank you. Um. Okay. Well. Van, let me ask you all the questions I wanted to ask you really quickly, and then you should go have a child. You and I, along with our whole podcast team and a ton of other people, have worked for the last year 
Why don't you describe the big project we just finished? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You may have heard of um, this podcast called Floodlines uh, at the Atlantic. Um, it's about Hurricane Katrina. Um, we spent most of uh, the past year trying to both follow sort of people in the moment, uh, what happened to them during Katrina. Also understand the history of how it wasn't just a natural disaster, um, how it was a result of policy and uh, failures by government. And so um, right. it's, it's been on my mind a lot uh, because the things we sort of came across, which were, um, you know, ineptitude, unwillingness of government, um, the way uh, stark disparities by income and race sort of defined the enduring fallout of that disaster, they seem to me to be relevant in thinking about this pandemic. Certainly. I mean, Trump's Katrina. I mean, that's a big phrase. Many people are referencing Katrina right now. But de Blasio last week said, you know, this is a Katrina in every city. You know, this is many Katrinas at once. How do you feel about that comparison? Well, I've never been super gung-ho about the sort of blanks Katrina um, formulation because it's just it's one that of course arose you know after George Bush was in office as a sort of political attack that you know people would spin any 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 kind of thing that wasn't even really remotely close to Katrina into you know this is it's it's Obama's Katrina you know, stuff like that so I, I I don't like that formulation yeah. and people calling this Trump's Katrina I have a bit of a problem with because I covered Hurricane Maria. And I was on the island uh, you know, in the days after Maria, hearing people sort of echo the same things that uh, people said during Katrina. And so if this is his Katrina, what was that? You know, um, I think what we learned about Katrina is that the sort of structural problems, um, the problems of will and of spirit that led us to the outcomes of Katrina are not episodic. We make choices every day about who we care about and who we will provide care for. Right. And Katrina was obviously an illustration of that. And the coronavirus pandemic is definitely going to be an illustration of that. And right. I think that if we want to make that comparison, I'm all here for it. Yeah. Jim, what do we know about, you know, we're, we're starting to hear there are all these stories about disparate outcomes. And, you know, it, it, there was this narrative for a while like, oh, this is affecting, this is a great equalizer. And, you know, the virus doesn't care who you are or where you live, you know. Who said that? Um, oh, well, I guess, yeah, no one's totally immune. But, yeah. It, there's always, in these disasters, the first thing is like, wow, we're all together. This is a natural force that, like, we're all vulnerable to, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sort of an equalizer in that everybody is a little bit afraid, but some people um, are definitely much higher risk, and we're seeing that in the numbers that came out of New York. They released them finally yesterday, the demographic breakdowns of who has died, and it's um, percentage of people in New York who have died who are black or Hispanic is twice as high as number of people who are white who have died. Uh, and it's continued, like, that disparity is expected to continue to bear out as the numbers grow. Yeah, I've seen the numbers and the burden on Latino folks, especially in New York, looks uh, pretty tragic. Yeah, not a great equalizer. I mean, you know. I feel like one of the big things you talked about in Katrina, Van. <coughs> oh, Sorry. no. You okay? 
I'm just choking on my own spit. It's fine. Um, I think one of the things that was so obvious in retrospect about Katrina was it didn't create anything new. It just made the existing structures more obvious. Right. Uh, I mean, so one of the things that's interesting about Katrina is, although the you know we people tend to even people who believe this happened along the lines of inequality, you know, they, they tend to believe that uh, that poor neighborhoods, black neighborhoods, were and clearly they were flooded more. Um, but actually, that wasn't really what happened. It, it really does appear that the amount of flooding isn't really correlated with the likelihood of a person being able to come back to the city in two years. What we found in researching for the podcast was that it was, like I said, the problems of the spirit and the will. It was policy that happened after the fact. It was the baked-in inequalities uh, that had not a whole lot to do with the flood itself that uh, affected the long-term outcomes for people, whether they were going to be able to rebuild, whether they were going to have the wherewithal, the capital to figure out all the insurance stuff whether they were going to be able to get their grants and loans uh, for coming back and whether they were just going to have plain advocates for them on the ground. Um, and uh, we follow people who just were not given that chance. I, the analogy I've made about hurricane is like, this is like a s- real slow moving hurricane that's hitting, hitting the whole, hitting the whole world. And there's mm-hmm. time still for places and some people to be helped as it's unfolding. So like, is there anything that even as behind the ball as we are, even all our historical precedent and the systems we have in place that are so flawed, what can we do right now to stop some of the damage? Yeah. um, Communities, neighborhoods are doing a lot better job at providing leadership at doing some of the necessary things than uh, the government. I think in places where state leaders have up until very recently um, denied that this was a problem. Um, you've seen local actors get out there and they've, I've seen it in some poor neighborhoods in Miami where the governor in Florida really took his time in, in getting to f- being serious about this response. But you saw hand-drawn signs in neighborhoods telling people to wash their hands, to try to maintain six-foot distance. You see people organizing meals so that to me is one super promising sign, you know, as cynical as we are about government and how we are organized, people still help people. And that's important. Yeah, that was one of the big sort of lessons from looking really closely at Katrina was that, you know, the narrative in the media that you would have heard at the time was in a moment like this chaos reigns. And that is not what happens. People take it upon themselves to help each other for the most part. And that is something that, you know, you hear a little bit like people are about going out and buying guns right now. And there's fear that, you know, society is just going to collapse. And I like to think that that's probably pretty unlikely. Well, I mean, I don't think Mad Max is going to happen. And as good as those outfits were. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've got my spikes and my leather just in case. I mean, I think really sort of our, visions of apocalypse or whatever are just, you know, reflections of the fact that lots of Americans have not seen disasters up close. Right. (laughs) Um, right. The thing I worry about weeks into the disaster Mm -hmm. when you haven't been relieved, Mm -hmm. right? when your efforts at helping and keeping things together are not being matched 
by effort at higher levels, that's when you see the real effects of long-term trauma, mental health damage, depression go in. People tend to isolate more after that point in the curve. Um, we know now that it, it could come and we could get in front of it by making sure that people do feel supported and they do feel like the flag is there waiting for them and, and is by their side. But uh, if that's going to happen, you know, we don't know. Are you worried? I'm worried about that. Um, I think people will get burned out. Um, I think all the nice ways that we have been uh, spending our time uplifting loved ones, they are very high maintenance, high energy things we have to do. And people are really good at doing them in the short term. Generally, people are really good at buckling down, at supporting each other, at doing hard things in hard times. But there is a time limit on that. And it should be the job of government to come in and take the burden from them when, when they can. And whether our governing structures are able to do that is a matter that's yet to be determined. Hmm. Yikes. Um, you took my line, Catherine. I say yikes. <laughs> Jim loves saying yikes. Um, Sorry about that. But I say it as a joke. But there really are, There's a. there are a lot of cops uh out on the streets a lot of patrol cars just rolling around new york it feels like we're using a lot of resources to kind of patrol for potential crimes and more resources go toward that and less toward this inevitable rise in people who do feel desperate and can't feed themselves and that's in new york where i feel like we're doing we've been pretty ahead of the curve in terms of establishing a emergency safety net i don't know yeah you all have you know food stamps in new york that people can access yeah. it's not so easy in some other places and it's it's uh i think you, you you're really right on the ball here some places have invested way more in police than they have in their social safety net programs you know you are what you spend on as a state and as a government and we've spent in so many states on punitive measures on ways to keep people out of housing on ways to stop people from being uh, quote-unquote dependent on the safety net on ways to incarcerate people who do wrong and those are going to be the effective systems when everything else falls down you can't expect in rural mississippi for the hospitals to all of a sudden start working when they haven't before for maternal mortality to stop being a problem when it has been for the past five years um, but what we can expect is cops are going to keep arresting people is people are going to keep contracting diseases in jail and prison, as is already happening. People are going to die that way. Um, and, you know, that's just the bottom line. We're going to report on those things as if they're new, as if they are sudden, you know, manifestations of a, a nation in crisis. But really all this is going to do is it's going to uh, accelerate all the things that we have been spending on. And it's going to illustrate what we haven't paid attention to. Right. Like, if you're mad about these things now, why why weren't we mad about them before yeah and people like to say oh you know this disaster has, has has opened our eyes to something or uncovered something but really you know having your eyes closed is a choice <sighs> yes so i know you're especially worried about the south i mean we've spent a ton of time focusing on new york we live in New York. Also, the media is here. Also, New York just always gets all of the attention. And we're not supposed um, to leave. I mean, this is the only place we can <laughs> be right now. 
Sure. Yeah. Yes. But the rest of the country exists. Uh, and in some ways, we're really pretty well off here. In some ways, as a result of the attention. If something happens here, everybody's going to find out. What are you paying attention to? I'm looking at rural America, where although we don't have a whole lot of clusters yet in rural places, you know, we have places like Albany, Georgia, which has dealt with what has to seem like an absolutely catastrophic number of deaths in a, in a small area um, without the type of resources, without the type of ability to mobilize public health response units as New York does. I'm looking at Louisiana, which actually is sort of in a better position than some other southern states because it's, it has expanded Medicaid. Governor John Bell Edwards has acted early and urgently in acquiring ventilators and having surge space for hospitals in New Orleans still. But still, New Orleans is really getting hit hard right now, New Orleans is is getting hit very hard right now. Um, There's a a pretty big outbreak in a federal prison in Louisiana, too. Aside from a nursing home, right, if you had to build a place, if you were like evil and had to build a, a structure that would ensure Right. The most amount of, you know, people would die from uh, a disease. Right. I guess you got an aircraft carrier, which is uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, ships, sort of in the sense. ships, ships, nursing and homes, ships, nursing homes and jails. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're all asking this question now. When will this end? When will get li- when will life get back to normal? And we're talking about it even though this is going to be a very long time and we realize even, even you know, oh, this might be a year. But then there is this expectation that this will be over. And I feel like Katrina has a really complicated lesson for us about the aftermath too. I'm curious how you would think about what the future is going to look like. I was, uh, I'm going to scoop myself a little bit here. I was talking to Andy Horowitz, who wrote a forthcoming book on Katrina. And he talks about how people willfully misunderstand what a disaster is, right? You know, we, we just talked about how it's a, how it's a manifestation and not a abrupt thing. But the reason why they do that is because um, it makes it so desirable and so natural to wish for status quo ante to go back to the way things right. were before, right. right before. The day before we understood the virus was in Wuhan. We want to go back there, mm-hmm. right? Right. I mean, but we're talking about it as if we're going to go back there. You know, when can we just get back to normal? We should be interrogating that idea. Why do we want to go back there? We understand that the things that existed then are the things that are aiding and abetting this, this, this virus and creating the shape of the pandemic as we know it now. You right. know, if we know now, that the entire construct of our system of prisons and jails is going to create reservoirs of of disease that are just going to be impossible to fight on a public health front. Why do we accept them as necessary? Right. If we know that our current public health response is just not adequate, if we know that our current healthcare system is not adequate, as bad as the coronavirus uh, COVID-19 pandemic is, there are lots of nastier germs out there with higher mortality rates that uh, we could have been hit with. What if one of those happens and we still have the same exact system? Why do we want to go back to that day? Right. Here's the flip side, though, that I want to ask you. I've heard a lot of people talking. I've heard the word, you know, oh, this is an opportunity. You know, the optimistic among us, right? 
are like, well, this is an opportunity to change things. Like it's making all of our problems so obvious and impossible to ignore that we can just, now we can see what's wrong and we can reconstruct everything, you know, which is a lovely thought. But because of what we know about the aftermath of Katrina and how the city was sort of rearranged and reorganized and how social structures were rebuilt, that ended up alienating and displacing a lot of people who had been there for generations. When people say this is an opportunity to rethink our structures, that actually scares me. Mm -hmm. I am worried about the vultures. I'm worried about opportunism generally. Mm -hmm. But I think my answer to that would be the vultures aren't rethinking anything. <laughs> they are doing what has been the, the, the rule of thumb in America for the past however many decades. They have power and they have money and they're exercising that power and money. That's not a rethinking, right? Yeah. The fact that aggressive accelerated gentrification seems to follow every single disaster. That's not a rethinking. That is yeah. power doing as it will. That's as mundane as oatmeal. Um, I had oatmeal for breakfast. It was mundane. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> to me, you know, there's rethinking and there's also, there's, there's, there's changing the way you do things. And that's the harder thing. I think lots of people, you know, I said, you know, folks' eyes are open and they've made a choice to open them now. But there's a next step that seems to be more difficult after a disaster or during a disaster. And that's, changing how we actually respond to these things. It's realizing that, uh, yeah, the structures of inequality in America are uh, what's exacerbating and maybe even creating the problem in some places and doing something to permanently change those conditions of inequality. That's but like, when has that ever happened after a disaster? And are well, we naive to think that I don't mean to be so pessimistic, but what, what actually would need to happen for that to become true, given that we have evidence from previous disasters that even if people are like, wow, we should definitely use this as an opportunity to fix things, um, how do we make sure that actually happens? Well, there's lots not to love about Roosevelt's response to the Great Depression, mm -hmm. but to say that it wasn't a radical reimagining of society would be untrue, too. Mm-hmm. That's the era I was thinking of, too. I think there's lots of problems with the, the war comparisons, but it's closer to that than any natural disaster because it's affecting the whole country and whole world. Um, you know, and we haven't had a natural disaster that did that in 9-11. You know, it affected everybody, but it didn't directly topple buildings in every city. And this is closer to that where you, you there is no going back. It's like... No one was after World War II, like, how can we just go back to normal life? I mean, sort of eventually, but the whole world was different. I don't know why I always, I don't know why I'm a catastrophist. Something to discuss with, uh, with a professional. But I, I guess my worry is that if we are not, that, what is my worry? Can I take a stab at it? Because I feel yes, like yes, please. Can you tell me the our, idea that I wish I was having? We had our mind melt before, but I, I think you, it's you had the mind melt, yeah, so maybe yeah. he yeah, he yeah. Can help you out. You're afraid that the radical change is going to happen is going to be one that's worse for everyone, right? It's going to be it, it's going to be one where 
the vultures take over. I mean, that's what happened all of after Katrina, no? I mean, in many ways. Right, right, right. And it's, it is a function of modern disaster, right? You know, the phrase disaster capitalism right. um, is, is true. And it, it is, I watched it happen in, in Puerto Rico after Maria. Right. Um, and it is a fact of modern life. And you, I think you're worried, and I'm worried too, that it's going to be the rule that dictates our big, uh, choices that are made um, in response to this pandemic. Right, it's happening. But also, one thing you know, one reason I can never be a true pessimist about humans is the humans themselves. I think people, uh, especially when pushed to extreme situations on the brink, have ways of surprising uh, us and doing things that do seem um, impossible and. Uh, figuring out ways to to go up against powers and trends that have, until certain points in history, been unshakable. And that's why I always place my hope in it. You know, I, I think you got lots of folks who are uh, dealing with terrible things right now who might not want, you know, power to be exercised and concentrated in a way that it has been after disaster traditionally. I hope so. Ben, you're going to make me cry. Well, that's where we are. I mean, that, that's, I mean, I yeah. All right. Well, um, Van, I'm going to let you go have a child, I think. Yeah, man. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, I'm going to go check in on the, uh, status of those contractions and see where we are. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you for spending time with us and, and, I'm so excited and I can't wait to hear the name and I'm sorry you have to do this via Zoom during this insane time, but I'm so excited for you and I can't wait to hear about your daughter. Well, I can't wait to meet her. I'll be thinking about you, man. Thank you. Okay, keep us posted. All right, take care, y'all. Okay, take care, Later. Man. Now I'm all weepy. I am not in a position to cheer you up. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm touched. Just the idea. I'm just excited okay. for Van's daughter. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's really wonderful. There are wonderful things happening at an interpersonal level every day. Right, um, right. I think I'm going to have to go cry. Um, so I might have to end this call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, right. no. But I mean... Um, you go cry. I'll do the, the credits here. <laughs> yeah, you, you do the credits. This show is produced by Alvin Melleth and Kevin Townsend with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. I hope to meet Anna and Jacqueline someday. Thank you, Anna and Jacqueline. Um, write us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com or call our phone, which is 1-800-FLOWERS, <laughs> F-L-O-W-E-R-S. No, I'm just kidding. It's 202-642-6487. Are you done? Are you done with the credits? Oh, I'm um, supposed to ask also if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be really appreciated. Cool. <laughs> so we'd appreciate that. Great job. Um, all right. We'll do something less dramatic tomorrow. Yeah, I'm just going to play American Pie on my guitar. Okay, right. oh, also, uh, to our audience, check out Floodlines. If you haven't listened to it already, listen yeah. to Floodlines. It's um, 
I should have done the plug for that. Sorry. That's your podcast. You did a great job with it. Van and Alvin and Kevin and the entire team did an amazing job putting together a really beautiful look back at what happened during Katrina and the long-term effects of it. And there are some wonderful people we got to talk to. And uh, if you're looking for just a really thoughtful piece of journalism from Van, check it out. From all of you, it is a deeply reported documentary style podcast that is the antithesis of this yeah if you hate this show yeah definitely check out bloodlines because it's much no just you want something different sometimes you just want people chatting about the latest thing and sometimes you want something that's extremely polished and meticulously done yeah and that's that Mm -hmm. yeah okay uh so we'll talk tomorrow okay okay bye bye Catherine.